welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Trevor Thrall, a senior fellow here at Cato. And I'm Emma Ashford, a research fellow in foreign policy at Cato. Today's topic is the Nuclear Posture Review. For many people, nuclear weapons and nuclear strategy are depressing, baffling, or both. Uh, But for those of us who grew up in the Cold War, uh, talking about nuclear weapons is a little bit like coming home. Uh, And perhaps also it is um, another sign that less has changed in international security and international politics than some younger people might imagine. Uh, And there's nobody better to help us think through what the Nuclear Posture Review means than our guest today, Hans Christensen, the director of the Nuclear Information Project at the Federation of American Scientists. Uh, Hans, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's jump right into the news. Um, First, you know, this just jumps right out at, at you when you open the pages of the newspaper, uh, what's up in Syria? I mean, you know, we often worry about power vacuums in failed states, but there's Syria's getting crowded. Uh, you got Russians, Iranians, Israelis, Americans, Turks. Um, wh- where's Syria heading? How long do we have to discuss this? Yeah. Like a couple of hours, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, no, things have been going crazy. For for a while there, mid-2017, late 2017, we thought things were, were sort of dialing down in Syria, that the conflict was maybe finally burning itself out. Um, and what seems to have happened is the domestic side of the conflict has burned itself out more. And now we're heading into this segment of, I guess, proxy conflicts, for, for lack of a better word, and not the proxy conflicts that we saw earlier in the war where we saw, you know, the Saudis, the Iranians, people arming and funding rebels, but it was on the ground. Now we have Russian mercenaries, we have American troops on the ground engaging one another. We have the Israelis bombing Hezbollah inside Syria. So this is getting really messy really fast. I don't I don't have a good feeling for how to explain this. It, this is a lot of cooks spoiling the broth. I mean, what? Who's who's? does anyone have a real clear theory of what they're doing here? I, I just can't see it. I don't. I mean, uh, all I can say is that, like you say, it's a, it's a it's a mix of an extraordinary amount of different interests that have been sort of, you know, thrown in the pot together, and and a lot of bob a lot of issues, regional issues, obviously, that have been there for a very long time, sort of bubbling up, uh, drawing neighboring countries in, whether it be the Turks or the Iranians or the uh, Israelis now, getting more directly involved. Um, so, and then on top of that, of course, we have, like you say, the proxy situation with the United States and, and Russia directly involved. And so you have all the components for how things can really go bad very quickly. You can have all, you can, you can think of all sorts of sort of escalatory uh, side effects that happen from this in the context of other, uh, disputes, uh, for example, between the United States and Russia. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so the the interesting thing for me, I guess, from U.S. policy standpoint is some of this we can blame on the Trump administration, right? Some of this is the Trump administration pouring troops into Syria for some very ill-defined mission, pushing back on Iranian influence. And to be frank, I've been watching this conflict and I have no idea what those troops are there to do. It's just not clear to me. But the other part of this is that the Obama administration did pursue some policies in their own involvement in the conflict in Syria that have led us to where we are now. And I'm thinking particularly that the Kurdish-Turkish situation is the one that that the Obama administration, you know, rightly pursued the campaign against ISIS. They backed the Kurds in that, but they never really had a plan for the end game, what they would do after that. And so this is all just birds coming home to roost. Yeah. And another reminder that slippery slopes are very slippery. And you're in for a little bit and you think it's limited and then 
you know, but you're giving it to the next team uh, and you don't know what they're going to do with it. So it's, you know, another cautionary tale, I guess. Yeah, the Russians learned that the hard way in Afghanistan, of Absolutely. course. Absolutely. Uh, okay. Um, so following his State of the Union speech, um, the Trump administration is set to make U.S. foreign aid conditional on whether or not countries vote with the United States at the UN. Um, sounds reasonable on the surface. Why would you give money to people who are sort of blocking your way? Um, but does it really make sense? Is this a, a reasonable thing to try? Well, um, sometimes when you when you work on these international matters, you have to obviously have your friends with you and, and, and cater them, et cetera, et cetera. But you can't just have this little snooty club where you say, unless you're with us, you know, you're out. You have to work directly with those that are sort of on the borderline, et cetera. Otherwise, you come across this, this um, you know, uh, self-cocooned entity that has an opinion but doesn't really know how to work the issue out there. And I think that's counterproductive. You know, um, it's kind of funny. There, there's actually a whole body of research out there on this. There are people in political science and foreign policy who spend a lot of time studying how UN votes, you know, reflect world affairs, how how other countries influence one another to vote in the UN. And, you know, anyone that's ever actually looked at sort of those data sets is well aware that the US is typically backed up by Nauru and Palau and Micronesian countries, these <laughs> tiny countries, and you wonder why they're voting for the US. So this isn't anything particularly new. But as I understand it, that research basically shows that carrots work better than sticks. So if we offer, say, some smaller countries money to vote with us, maybe they will. But if we offer to take the money away, that's not nearly so effective. Yeah. It, yeah in fact, it, I, a little bit of self-interest on my part, actually, even putting that news bit in there, because I have just trolled through this literature myself for a, for a policy analysis. And and you're right, Emma, that's uh, more or less what it shows. Now, the Reagan administration tried this uh, very explicitly and failed uh, to get anywhere with it. In fact, the research on the Reagan administration sort of experiment in doing this showed that uh, the end result was actually less uh, co-voting with the U.S. than more. And so I think the history suggests, you know, Hans, as you're saying, that, you know, you, you're going to end up coming across as a bully and so on. And, you know, there's countries that are going to vote for you or with you because that's already their interest. You don't need to worry about, you know, coercing them. And then there's countries who have really good reasons not to vote with you. And there's it's really hard to for a few bucks to tell them to vote a different way. So really the people you're looking at are, you know, these not very many countries that are maybe viable or threatenable, but – Emma, as you point out in that case, uh, carrots tend to work better than than the stick. So, But I think we've seen with the Trump administration that sticks are their favorite. So it's not going to be carrots. Well, I also think, you know, looking longer term, um, the United States has to build a, an international community, of course, that wants to support U.S. policy in the future. It's not just the question who has the biggest stick here and now and what kind of economic pressure can you do here and now. You want to build a base that, that's broader and broader of more countries that are actually um, sympathetic to the U.S. approach and, and way forward. Yeah, right on. Yeah, and to some extent, this is, I mean, the bigger question here, right, is to the, the extent to which the Trump administration is abandoning the image-based part of American sort of liberal hegemony. And I know Barry Posen called it in an article last week, illiberal hegemony, which is a really good name for it. But the Trump administration does seem to, it likes sticks. It doesn't seem to want to persuade countries to join with it. Um, it's mostly about U.S. power. And maybe that reflects reality more effectively, but it's also not a good way to make friends. Yeah, yeah. extreme sort of uh, belief in credibility, very little in cooperation, I guess, you know, yeah, for sure. We can also see it in, in the way they have filled or not filled the diplomatic corps 
in terms of trying to build the capacity out there to change countries and influence countries. Um, and so all you have left in a way are the sticks because, you know, you have sort of a, this is what we do. If you're not with us, uh, you're against us, this type of philosophy. Whereas if you if you fill the capacity with the expertise and people at home and, and, and abroad, you you have a real chance to influence countries and get them to go with you, of course, by persuading, uh, persuading them about uh, following a better policy. Absolutely. Okay, last last news bit, the Olympics. Um, we've talked about the Olympics a little bit before on our on our podcast, but at this point, uh, can we say that North Korea is winning the Olympics? Well, speaking of charm offensives, right, uh, the North Koreans turn out to actually be pretty good at it. Um, you know, there's been all these what lovely news stories, effusive praise for how, how <laughs> Kim Jong-un's sister is so wonderful and she's the Ivanka Trump of North Korea and all of this fawning coverage in the media that they've just been able to basically look relatively normal, look relatively restrained and suddenly everybody loves North Korea. I don't know. Can you look at those cheerleaders and say they look normal? <laughs> exactly. It's very staged. Obviously, anything looks better than missiles pointing at you. So it's kind of like, you know, we come from this extreme situation of year plus, uh, well, several years of just rattling the swords and, and suddenly you have this handshake uh, kind of policy. And so I've heard both uh, sides. Obviously, there are some people who are very blown away by it. That is such a contrast to what we've been going through for the last year. But also people saying, you know, don't be fooled about this. We know that there's another cycle in the up and down. And, uh, you know, we'll have to deal with that uh, later down the road. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think Putin's jealous. I don't think he got as much uh, fawning <laughs> coverage as the North Koreans were getting. But he didn't roll out the cheerleaders either. So I don't know that's on Putin, I guess. But uh, You know, it, actually, that's the Olympic story that we're missing is is Russia, <laughs> because of the doping at Sochi, yeah. is not actually allowed to participate in these Olympics as, as a country. So there are some Russian athletes competing under the Olympic flag. That is a huge black eye for Putin is a huge black eye for a country that is so set on being prestigious, viewed as an equal. The Olympic Committee probably would never have done that to the Soviet Union. And that's got to hurt Putin. So, uh, but, but nobody's really talking about it because we're so focused on North Korea. Yeah, good point. It's true. But on the other hand, at home, of course, it might just play completely into his hands because he can say, look, I told you the world is just bad and, and against us. And this just is another example of being unfair to Russians. True. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting point. Um, on another note, the Norwegians are actually winning the Olympics, I think. I think they have, <laughs> they have all the gold medals, so that's uh, good for them. Uh, okay, surprise question of the day time, Hans. Um, this, is, this might be a tough one. I, I don't know. So we're asking everybody to tell us what is the single best foreign policy decision that the Trump administration has made, <laughs> and what is the single worst foreign policy decision the Trump administration has made? Well... Can I have too bad? <laughs> <laughs> we, we might make an exception for uh, um, uh, Well, I, you know, on the on the low side, of course, I think uh, the whole the whole issue about um, you know my button is bigger than your button, and we're going to annihilate you, and all this kind of you know chest thumping type of stuff uh, has been extraordinarily damaging, I think, um, and also confusing to uh, to a lot of uh, 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 allies and and friends. Um, on the good side, I th I mean, I could have mentioned, of course, also the the, the weariness early on about saying that he was behind NATO defense and these types. Of, I mean, it's just there, there's a long list. But on the good side, I think, you know, if I have to give, pick a good one, it's probably his choice of uh, uh, Defense Secretary Mattis, uh, which I think has become a much more stabilizing figure than I think people wa dreamed and dreamed about in their wildest imagination. And it was like, you know, Mad Dog Mattis coming in and 
suddenly he's the least mad in that demonstration. That's extraordinary. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Interesting point. I think a lot of we've actually had more than one person come on our podcast and say something about how glad they are about Mattis. So that yeah, interesting. Yeah, I, I always I always take that with a grain of salt, though, because Mattis, yes, you're right. He's been very stabilizing, very helpful, whatever. <laughs> His views are not exactly restrained. They're not even necessarily mainstream on a lot of issues, particularly on Middle Eastern issues. Um, and so that's that's something to bear in mind as we talk about how rational and sensible and great he is. Well, this is the space-time distortion here in the, in the uh, Trump administration because, you know, because things are so bad, anything that is less bad um, suddenly appears very appealing. I mean, it's extraordinary effect. Uh, that can have an effect later on, much later on the uh, the next candidates, of course, also for the election in 2020. Um, people will be much more susceptible to uh, uh, to, to to characters that were perhaps unacceptable, um, you know, in the previous election. The dreaded Overton window has slid towards Trumpism. Yes, maybe so. Yeah, good point. Uh, okay. Um, Enough Trump. Let's talk about the nuclear posture review. Um, for our listeners who are not familiar with this process, which I assume is quite a few of them, um, Hans, could you give us just a little historical perspective on the review process, what it's for, why it's important, and uh, you know, in the big picture? Yeah. Well, the nuclear posture review is a phenomenon that came out of sort of uh, after the end of the Cold War, um, where they were trying to figure out what U.S. nuclear policy and force posture planning and broader military planning, of course, also should be after the end of the Cold War. And so we have had a string of now four uh, nuclear posture reviews. Um, uh, we had one in 94. That was the Clinton administration. As We had one in 2001 or two. That was the uh, W. Bush administration. And then the Obama administration in 2010. And then we here have in 2018 the Trump administrations. And um, these review, um, they're supposed to capture what is the, the, the purpose, the role of U.S. nuclear weapons, the structure of the forces, so to speak, uh, and the signal we're trying to send both to uh, adversaries and, and, and allies. Um, so that's a lot to capture in one document. But they, of course, they've changed a lot in the different administration in terms of their, uh, the sort of their overall impression, the point being that Nuclear posture planning used to be sort of a very defense department-focused business. Um, but what was unique about the Obama administration's I, uh, nuclear posture review, I thought, was that it was much more of a sort of a two-tier um, uh, effort trying to do a broader nuclear policy, where on the one hand, you have the defense department um, business with the forces, the strategy, et cetera, et cetera. On the other hand, it really elevated the the, the importance of non-proliferation and 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 counter-proliferation um, to an arms control. Um, so you had sort of two pillars uh, in this that was a broader nuclear policy. This nuclear posture review, in my view, goes sort of back to more of a previous version where it overwhelmingly fo focuses on uh, the, the uh, Pentagon portion of it. Yeah, I mean, I, so, so I guess the, the question really is, what is different about this nuclear posture review? And you've you've just highlighted one thing, which is that it's it's very defense focused. But um, you know, let's cut to the chase. What does this nuclear posture review tell us about how the Trump administration views nuclear weapons? Well, that's that's actually, in my view, sort of an irony here. But I think it, it speaks less to what the Trump administration, in terms of the character led by Donald Trump, um, or the, the administration led by the character uh, Donald Trump, uh, is about. Um, but I think the authors of the nuclear posture review obviously have uh, seen an opportunity. Um, there was room to do more uh, because of the leadership in the White House um, that changed. So I think um, in this review, we have a 
we have a we sort of a mix of content. One, in terms of the sheer amount of work and and the challenge, uh, is the core of what was in the Obama administration's nuclear posture review, namely the modernization of the triad, bring forward the core U.S. Uh, st uh, strategic nuclear capability um, to live on into the future, whatever shape and form that is. There's still a debate about how much and how expensive and all these things, but that's the bulk of it. That's the overwhelming amount of it that they, they bring that uh, program forward. Um, but then, of course, the, 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 the critical difference here is that the review quite clearly sort of um, breaks with the Obama administration's policy uh, of seeking to reduce the numbers and the role of nuclear weapons. Not that it says what the U.S. is opposed to reducing uh, those, but there's no there's no active policy to try to achieve it. It's, um, if you will, it's sort of, it's shifting the focus to what's sort of described in there as a great power competition with uh, primarily Russia and China. Um, so, so in that sense, there's a stark shift, both both in terms of objective, but also in terms of way to go about it. Um, and so specifically, what they're saying is that it's not enough any longer to just bring forward the existing nuclear arsenal and modernize that, make sure it works in the future, et cetera. Now we need to have what's called supplements to it. And so they specify two um, particular types. One is a low-yield warhead modification of one of the uh, Navy's Trident warheads. Um, and the other is pursuit of a new sea-launched uh, cruise missiles that would, that, that would go on uh, presumably attack submarines. Those two types of weapons are needed, the authors claim, because uh, primarily, uh, it seems, at least in terms of how they argue it, because of what Russia is doing. And so uh, the, the low-yield Trident warhead um, is is argued um, on, on the basis of a need to have what they call a prompt uh, strike capability with much less collateral damage. Um, now, of course, there's no there's no description of why we think that is needed. Uh, it's sort of a they make that claim, and if you're a nuclear theorist, you can buy it or you can you can ditch it, you know, whatever. But there's no sort of substantial information that says this is the intelligence has community has concluded that the Russians are now gambling that we would be self-deterred because we don't have a lower yield warhead on that, you know. So it, it, there's all that stuff that's missing on the sea launch cruise missile. It's sort of an attempt. It's sort of a mix between well, let's try to get something that speaks to the Russians directly. But it's not something we have to put on land in Europe so we get into a political fight with the European countries. So let's put something on an attack submarine and that will make Russians think twice and, and reconsider their violation of the INF Treaty. And by the way, if we do this, it might also make them more willing to talk about reducing the inventories of tactical nuclear weapons. And again, it's sort of it, it sort of grabbed out of the, the air because there's <laughs> Russia started its INF violation program back in the days when we did have a nuclear sea launch cruise missile in inventory, and that didn't persuade them. So now the argument is, well, then let's get a new one because then they will think twice. And on the attacks and on the uh, non-strategic nuclear weapons, it's also really interesting because, in my view, Russia does not shape its non-strategic nuclear posture at all based on what kinds of U.S. non-strategic weapons there are or what their yields are or anything like that. 
it is much more directly linked to a perception of uh, Russia's conventional forces being inferior to NATO's and pr primarily, obviously, the United States' conventional forces. Uh, so they, they're in a way, they're using tactical nuclear weapons in their strategy as a way to compensate for that um, uh, that inferiority. Um, uh, ironically, much in a way that, that NATO used to do back in the 1960s um, when the Soviet Union had a huge conventional um, uh, superior force in Europe and they the NATO countries thought they needed tactical nuclear weapons to, to compensate for that. Yeah, so, so it's interesting. We talked about this a little before the podcast too, but it almost seems like the authors of the Nuclear Posture Review um, have adopted this idea that was going around. So for, for a number of years, there's been an idea going around that the Russians have this policy called escalate to de-escalate. And that would be the, the use of sort of low-yield tactical nuclear weapons in a conflict situation, but that wouldn't then provoke a, you know, thermonuclear war, essentially, right? We, we would restrict our use to those little nukes. And, and it almost seems like the authors of this review have sort of not just accepted that that is Russian policy, which I think is very questionable if you talk to people that study this issue, but they've actually adopted it themselves. And so this, uh, you know, the, the argument for escalate to de-escalate is that it makes full-scale nuclear exchange less likely, but it also seems to me that this policy might make nuclear use at a lower level more likely if nothing else. Yes. I mean, <laughs> you, it, it says it, those two uh, supplements, in my view, are, are very, very odd because, you, like you say, you could say they buy into Putin's you know, philosophy here that you know, lower yield nukes give you an edge or some, some way of doing things. Uh, but on the other hand, I think um, it, it gets us very little uh, for a lot of trouble. Um, and I think one of the things that will come out of this is that um, – which is what really strikes me about the way this nuclear post review has come across in the debate, that there's such a disparity between the way the, the general public has been talking about this, uh, experts and the community both here in the United States but also abroad, politicians as well, and then the way the authors presented. Um, you know, th there's a clear reading of this document uh, by by people here and abroad, including myself, that there is a lot of new in this document. It doesn't mean that it's all new, <laughs> but but there is a lot of new. And, and I think one should not sort of dis, d diminish that, um, uh, which is unfortunately is the tendency of the authors of the report. Um, but I also think, you know, in terms of the usability of nuclear weapons, it speaks to that the existing arsenal we have um, is not capable of doing it. And the low yield uh, Trident warhead, particularly for me, is is troublesome. Not because I think it will fundamentally shift the balance or something like that, but I think it speaks to an intent uh, in the eyes of allies and 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 adversaries that the United States is up to something different now with the way it can use strategic weapons. And I don't think that's a very productive way to go. Uh, there's no evidence, in my view, that any adversary out there sits and says. Well, you know, we don't have to count on the Tritons coming in because they're very large warheads, so the Americans will be self-deterred. There's no evidence to that. Um, and so this is, to me, sort of a, a nice addition to the toolbox for people who think in those patterns in terms of, you know, we need to have a compatible capability so that if one side escalates, then we can escalate a little with them, sort of walk up that ladder, a sort of very, very 1980s form of thinking about um, uh, nuclear deterrence. I, th I think the interesting thing about that, Hans, to me, 
<clears throat> you know, having cut my teeth on nuclear strategy in the in the 80s in school is that I don't think the people who made the arguments about escalation dominance in the 80s um, ever changed their mind. So I, I think what we're doing here, we're a little bit of a back to the future thing <laughs> where we're picking back up the nuclear strategy debate and it's like it was trapped in amber and we're just sort of, you know, chipping away the amber to find out that the two basic ways of thinking about the world, kind of like a spiral model and a deterrence model, are just the same as they always were in people's minds. The escalate to de-escalate is just the same notion of giving North Korea a bloody nose and then that will keep them from – I mean, really, like that, that, that logic hasn't shifted much at all over 40 years. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because actually I was I was going to mention, Hans, when you said about, you know, this is kind of a shift back to great power politics, the, the entire point, as I understand it, of the nuclear posture review sort of early on during the Clinton administration was trying to figure out what our nuclear posture should be now that we weren't engaged in the Cold War. It just seems like we've come full circle, as Trevor yeah. suggests. But, but the key argument, of course, of the authors is that um, things have changed since 2010. You know, Russia has gone into Ukraine um, and uh, doing a lot of uh, dubious stuff uh, in trying to influence other countries, uh, not a, by any means at the nuclear level, uh, most of that, but but also uh, some at the nuclear level. But but even if you you have concerns about what uh, Russia is doing under Putin, um, throwing new nuclear supplements at those problems, I think, is not the right way to go about it. Um, it sort of buys into the trouble rather than trying to uh, deal with it. And again, I keep coming back to this issue here. There is no evidence at all that our existing nuclear capabilities backed up by an enormously capable conventional strike capability are not overwhelmingly capable of deterring a Russian use of whether it be conventional or nuclear. Um, and if they do it, deal with it. And it's striking for me to see just a year ago, uh, Stratcom Commander General Hyten, he was asked uh, in Congress uh, about whether he needed a low-yield uh, weapon on the Trident. And he, um, the way he answered this was not directly, but the way he answered it was with a long explanation about how capable the U.S. and how flexible the U.S. Uh, strategic strike capabilities are today, going all the way from low, very low, conventional, through escalation to nuclear to all the way up. Um, that he has plenty of option that he can give the president. And so here we are one year later. Forget that. No, that stuff doesn't work well enough. We need some nuclear supplements. So I think, you know, there is an element of sort of opportunistic uh, nuclear Christmas shopping going on here that there's a new leader in the White House. He seems to be more, uh, uh, you know, inclined to think about these things. So let's try to get some extra weapons in. And, and I always I, – I find this document to reflect – both um, too, too little fear of nuclear weapons and too much fear all sort of at the same time. You know, that they, they don't believe in deterrence as we practice it now, evidently. Um, so they're not scared enough of nuclear weapons in my mind. And, 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 and yet they, they think, you know, we can build scary – I don't know. It, it, it's, it's, it's a little bit backwards to me. And, and I, I feel like um, the – we don't have any evidence of, of other countries seeming to come close to using them. And my main concern is having people on our side develop things that they can build usable case narratives around. You know, if we build smaller yield weapons that we can imagine using, I think we become the most likely candidate for using them. 
Well, I mean, all countries that built these things that have them as part of their strategy have to be willing to use them. I mean, otherwise, it's a fake strategy and it's not credible, et cetera, et cetera. So when we complain uh, on our side here about Russia's so-called escalate to de-escalate, I mean, they've had an escalate to de-escalate for a long time. They wanted, they needed to use tactical nuclear weapons to push back an overwhelming conventional attack. Um, and like I said before, we we used to do that too. Uh, we don't have to consider early use of nuclear weapons anymore because of our overwhelming conventional capability. That has been a core shift in U.S. strategic planning over the last two decades, that it's not a nuclear only anymore. It is very much sort of a, a mix uh, of capabilities to produce strategic effects for a certain specific objective. And I think what the authors do here is that they sort of swing back to the way we used to deal with these problems back in the 1980s. So let's throw some tactical nukes after it. And I think that's kind of uh, – it's kind of giving up uh, on the problem. Um, there's also – there's an aspect to it. We, we have to think what we have been trying to do in Europe for the past four to five years. We have, you know, uh, sent in significant – new uh, conventional force uh, forces structures into Europe, both our own, but also got allied countries to follow up. And we put troops in the Baltic states, um, in several other countries, built up infrastructure, et cetera. We've even changed the way we currently uh, support European command. There's an entirely new war plan that has been put in place to respond specifically to Russian aggression. U.S. Strategic Command has changed already the way they use strategic bombers in support of uh, European command. Um, those bombers are armed with long-range cruise missiles. They will be able to target exactly the same targets as the sea-launched cruise missile that they're now proposing. So, you know, we're busy. We're doing a lot of stuff. And I think we should try to build on that and try to build support in Europe for that as well and come across as a coherent voice uh, to Putin rather than throw in these extra news that will split the alliance in disagreements about whether they're needed or not. Frankly, this this whole discussion is just – every discussion about nuclear weapons is, is just strange lovian, right? You're, you're all the way back to Dr. Strange Love. You know, you have a doomsday machine. Why didn't you tell us about it? Does it work if we don't know about it? And that seems to be some of the discussion that we're getting in here today is, you know, the Trump administration is saying, well, you know, we will make these weapons and then they might be usable. And that's sending a signal. And the Russians have those weapons but haven't actually said they might use them. And so is that a different signal? And so the, the, the entire thing just – is absurd to the point of ridiculousness, even though we're talking about something that could kill millions or billions of people. Yeah. And and on top of that, it, I always get the feeling that if once you – one of the cues in the document, like in the national security strategy, is this – you know, emphasis on great power competition. And I, I'm I'm a realist, more or less, and so I believe that such a thing exists. And yet when you see people talking about it, to me it's code for if they have missiles, I'm going to have more of them and better, even if there's no strategic reason. And I, that's what I, I felt like this all through the <laughs> 80s and 90s. I was like, well, you know, there's just going to be a group of people in the U.S. who if there are – if there's a thing to compete on, they want to have the most of it. And it's almost just like a, a cult at this point. It's not pointful. It's not strategic. It's just – but it's dangerous to have that viewpoint, it seems to me. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, national security building is always an issue of, of having balanced approaches to, to problems. And I think this uh, nuclear posture view and the, the kind of philosophy it represents, uh, as far as I can read it, is too much in one camp. Um, 
it's not to say that they're not serious issues, then we shouldn't deal with them. Uh, we actually have to, and <laughs> but I think this one tips over. And, uh, and you can argue whether you need this or that weapon system, but if it's sort of a very one-sided, um, I mean, deterrence, just for deterrence is dangerous because it's entirely about threatening. And it assumes that you can somehow make the adversaries just go home. And we know when we get threatened, uh, we don't react like that. In fact, this nuclear posture view is an example that we don't just pack up and go home. We respond by putting in new capabilities and changing our strategies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's the dynamic. And I fear uh, that Putin is <laughs> troublesome, to put it mildly. Um, but now we're joining him, uh, so to speak, uh, and I don't think it increases security. I think it uh, uh, raises some fundamental questions about the future direction of security, mostly in Europe, uh, for certain. Yeah. So, so I mean, I guess the other question that this raises is the bit, the big element of continuity between the Obama nuclear posture reviews and this nuclear posture review is the continuation of this. Uh, I think it's ten billion dollar modernization program. Um, so it basically looks like the Trump administration is just going to go ahead, replace all three legs of the triad. Um, so I guess, what are your thoughts on that? Well, um, if you have nuclear weapons, you have to modernize them you, at some point. You have to uh, make sure they work, et cetera. That's not the issue in my view. The the unfortunate uh, tendency is that we, we have this debate over should we have nuclear weapons or should we not have nuclear weapons? Should we have deterrence or should we not have deterrence? Can we modernize or can't we modernize? Can we afford it or can we not afford it? I mean, it's this very black and white form of debate. The biggest disservice I think the authors of the Nuclear Posture Review have done uh, is um, to completely belittle and gloss over the serious channel challenges that are in fact in play uh, for the affordability of modernizing the existing uh, triad. This is not just something left-wing uh, you know, arms controllers say. Uh, we've had numerous serious reminders about this over the last uh, five years. Um, that really asked the Pentagon, you know, fine, you want to do this, but can you figure out a way to adjust it? And in the Nuclear Post Review, the authors make a big deal out of saying, come on, guys, this is no more than 3 to 6% of the entire uh, Defense Department budget. You know, clearly we can afford that. But that, again, is a black and white question because that is not the issue. The issue is that if they want that, they have to take some of the money that there is not coverage for from conventional programs. So please identify to me who, what are those programs? Where are you going to take it from? So there is a huge internal fight going on in the Pentagon and the military community about what's most important. And again, it's not about nuclear or not nuclear. It's about how much can we afford, what's appropriate. So instead of dealing with the affordability issue, they say, well, scratch that. And by the way, here are some more supplements to the nuclear arsenal that we'd like you to pay for. That I find uh, is a very troublesome uh, portion of the nuclear posture review. Yeah, and, and I see actually just looking at my notes that I very lowballed that amount. It's not $10 billion, It's $1 trillion was what Obama <laughs> asked for for nuclear modernization. Well, so just in reminder, it's, that's for nuclear modernization as well as maintaining the forces we have. It's a mixed bag. Um, but what really struck me when I saw the chart that was in the NPR was that when I draw a line from the top of the cost, just the DOD cost, and back in time, this is about 60% of the cost that it was during the Reagan years, 
the peak modernization program, 60% for a significantly smaller nuclear arsenal. Back in those days, it was Cold War peak levels. This is much less, but still 60%. That's an enormous investment. Um, and, and, and this 3 to 6% doesn't really help us understand whether that is sufficient or whether that is uh, reasonable um, and how it should be adjusted to basically be more sustainable. I have, I have two questions that that raises. One is, um, what do you think the implications of of this posture of view or, or maybe, you know, the, the thinking that produced it, um, what are the implications for arms control and nonproliferation down the road? So that's, that's the first one. Well, so the good news, of course, is that the United States and Russia are um, now in compliance with the New START Treaty uh, after seven years of implementation. And um, it will uh, expire in 2021. Um, both sides are seem determined to keep it uh, and stay within the limits. Um, both sides are also um, spending more time now on what you call hedging, where they sort of have forces that are deployed and some forces that are not deployed, and extra warheads and storage. So if the other guy, if the other side goes crazy, then they can compensate and, and catch up, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that I think in the future will be a, become a, more of a problem. The hedging will become more of an issue. Um, but. Um, that's the good news that we have the New START Treaty. It's a lid on – if you're concerned about the Russians, it is a lid on their force posture structure. And I'm just working on, on, on my analysis of the Russian force structure right now in response to that. And it's clear that the New START Treaty has forced the Russians to make significant downloads, warhead downloads on their strategic missiles. Um, without that, they're not constrained at all. Um, so the least – the, the Trump administration and, and Putin could do is to agree on extending this treaty for another five years. That's the least you can do. If you can't even do that, and the INF treaty is most likely on its deathbed, um, then we end up in a situation just in a few years from now where there are no constraints, none, zero, on any form of uh, nuclear issues. Um, so that will be really, really difficult <laughs> to explain to the international nonproliferation community. Uh, the nonproliferation treaty, uh, you know, requires the, the five nuclear weapon states to take steps toward reducing and eventually eliminating nuclear weapons. If they can't even have a, a single or simple treaties that are not significant in terms of their effect on their force structures, but nonetheless, uh, if they cannot even carry that forward much less take initial steps, but return to great power competition status. Uh, this is going to be a really significant challenge for the international nonproliferation community, I think. Yeah, I don't, I don't sense that the Trump administration – I mean, if Trump had ever heard of this uh, new start, he would have called that the second worst deal ever, I'm, I'm guessing, uh, after the Iran deal. But we'll see. Uh, all right, and the second is a maybe a little more metaphysical here. So I, I'm worried about – the gap between the nuclear defense establishment, people who've been working these issues for decades, and who I think of as some, you know, some a little bit crackpotty, maybe some whatever, but but generally they understand nuclear weapons and deterrence. I'm not sure Trump falls in that same category. I, I'm not sure what he thinks. And here, so I just want to posit a scenario and, and get your take. Things get tense with North Korea. North Korea lobs a nuclear weapon at Seoul. 
It detonates. It kills tons of people. What does Trump do? Well, he'll say something big for sure, but I think what he what he's almost required to do is respond uh, somewhat in kind. Um, the point being that it would be very hard to imagine the North Koreans annihilating Seoul uh, with a nuclear weapon and the United States not responding, not in kind by annihilating Pyongyang or something like that, but, but the point of having a response. Um, and there are many ways of looking at that. Uh, one, of course, is you have to still think about what's after such a scenario. There will be other scenarios in the future. And the, United, the United States does not respond somewhat in kind. Um, you know, what, what is that going to tell other adversaries that may, may think about potentially using nuclear weapons in limited scenarios? Um, at the same time, militarily, it's not necessary. I mean, is, it, this is the, the weird thing here that the United States has overwhelming capacity to go in and take out to the extent that it's physically possible um, launchers, infrastructure, uh, leadership, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Granted, there will be some very deep caves or some bunker way down there in the granite that you probably can't get to, um, but they won't mean much in the big picture. Um, so I think there, there's a dilemma here that on one hand, when, if you're talking about military necessity, you don't have to, but politically, um, you might have to. <laughs> so, so I think that would be the issue. Frankly speaking, I think it's a little intri intriguing right now. I think, I think, frankly, the military is less of the problem right now uh, on these matters because I think there's far less um, sort of lust for the crazy scenarios uh, in, the, in the Pentagon uh, uh, and certainly in the armed forces. They understand full well the consequences of making that mistake. Um, so I, I, I find they go along in the nuclear posture view somewhat. They go along with the nuclear supplements because, okay, you know, the, the hardliners wanted some of this and it's not a big deal, they would say, as long as they get what they want, which is the core modernization program for the strategic uh, forces in the triad. Well, it's about all the time we have. And on that cheerful note, uh, Hans, thank you so much for helping us understand the nuclear posture review uh, a little bit more. Um, thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, to continue the conversation, you can find us on Twitter with hashtag FPPowerProblems. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Jeff Geld. And if you like the episode, um, uh, look, just say something nice about us on iTunes or Google Play. Thanks a lot. <laughs>